You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I am one of the pastors here at City Church. And it's, uh, as always, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be with you this afternoon. Do you ever have those moments where your brain just kind of randomly decides to bring back into your mind one of the embarrassing memories from your past? That happens to me fairly often. Um, one that comes back to, to me was from my first day of class, uh, my freshman year of college. Um, I was walking to class, and there was this group of um, sorority girls lining the pathway that I was walking on. They were, uh, some kind of student election was going on, and they were trying to get one of their sisters elected, so they're standing on both sides of the path, handing out flyers, sh- you know, shouting the girl's name. And here I am, freshman Harrison, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, but extremely insecure. And I'm thinking, okay, just play it cool, play it cool. <laughs> you know, this group of like upper-class co-eds on either side of me, play it cool. And I didn't play it cool. Um, I tripped on a piece of uh, broken concrete. And, but, you know, rather than just like falling, I caught myself. And I did this kind of like stumbling stutter step move. And something in my 18-year-old mind decided, hey, play this off and start jogging. So that's what I did. I acted like I was jogging. I jogged. Uh, In some ways, I don't think I've ever stopped jogging after that, um, existentially. Uh, I definitely heard some laughs as I continued. And that was the first day of college for me, running, fearfully running away from a large group of beautiful women. <laughs> so embarrassing, but in hindsight, hilarious. Uh, but there are other memories, of course, that come up that, in hindsight, are harder to laugh at. Uh, one of those that comes back often um, is from when I was in second or third grade. And long story short, um, there was a miscommunication between my family about who was going to come pick me up from school. And so I was left waiting for about 30 minutes. I was the last person who was picked up from school. You'd think, not a big deal. But um, A, I was a very neurotic child. Um, B, uh, I was usually among the first people to be picked up. And so as car after car would come by and it wasn't for me, I started to get really worried. I started to think, did did something happen? Did something go wrong? Remember, this is pre-cell phone days, right? So there's no communication there of what happened. Uh, I started to get worried, and then I started to feel very alone, and then my mind kind of starts to spiral, and I start to think, did they just forget me? And when it was down to the last few people, I started to cry, (laughs) and uh, I was, you know, I was trying to hold it in. That's the last thing as like a second or third grader that you want to be seen doing. Um, I was trying to hold it in, but, you know, a few tears were making it down my face. And those really betrayed where I truly was. I was, I was felt very alone um, and fearful and worried. And eventually, of course, my mom came and picked me up and she explained what happened. 
And it, it, for the most part, it was water under the bridge. But I think the reason that that memory um, sticks with me so much is because there have been so many times since that time that I felt like I was back in that little boy's shoes, uh, alone and waiting, worrying that something went wrong, worried that I've been left behind. And I wonder if you've felt that before. I imagine you do. I think it's a pretty human emotion to have. I imagine that some of you probably even came in here today feeling that way. And if that's the case, I think that uh, tucked away in today's sermon text is really good news. You know, if you were here last week, you'll know that um, we started our, our Advent series, and we're looking, we're really digging in on one passage, two verses, Galatians 4, 4 to 5, and we're doing this because we think that this passage really contains the essence of the Christmas message. And what we're going to learn today as we examine this passage again is that the good news of the incarnation is that God is with us in our waiting. When we're waiting and we feel afraid and worried and fearful that we've been left behind, God is with us in Christ. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, we're going to look at verses 4 to 5. This is also in your worship guide. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing in your sight today, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so today we're going to focus on the second clause of the passage, born of a woman. And to help unfold that, I'm actually going to be referring back to the passage that uh, Peyton read for us earlier in the service, Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. So it might be good for you actually to turn there in your Bible as well, or it's also in your worship guide, because we're going to be talking a lot about that passage. Now, the incarnation is one of the uh, central tenets of the Christian faith, and it's maybe the central mystery of the Christian faith. So I don't want you to think that, you know, in the next uh, 20 plus minutes, we're going to have some kind of deep exposition of what the incarnation is. What I simply want to do is I want to whet your appetite for this doctrine and invite you over the course of Advent to really dig into it. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to talk with Val, and I'm going to post a few resources to help you do that on the church blog. We'll probably shoot those out through Instagram as well. So this afternoon, I want us to do basically two things. First, um, I want us to explore the deeper meaning of the incarnation. And then second, I want to show how that deeper meaning can deeply impact our experience of waiting on the second advent of Christ. So let's talk about the deeper meaning of the incarnation. And to do that, I want to ask this basic question. What's going on with the incarnation? That sounds kind of like a Jerry Seinfeld bit. <laughs> What's going on with the incarnation? Um, now, this might seem like, like an overly simple question to ask. I assume that if we 
if we went out on Monument Avenue and we did some, some kind of like person on the street interviews and we asked, hey, what's, what do we commemorate at Christmas time? Most people would probably say, even the non-Christians would probably say, oh, the, the birth of Jesus. Even if they didn't believe it, they'd probably know that's what we celebrate. And part of that, of course, is because of the music that you hear everywhere you go. Uh, Christmas music, this is the one time of the year where uh, Christ, like deep Christian doctrines are played in the CVS. Uh, you have songs like uh, Silent Night, The First Noel, Oh Holy Night, Joy to the World. And so you would think that if there were one part of Jesus' life that didn't need much more explaining, it would be this one. But what if we started to pry a little deeper? What if we started to ask some questions? Let me ask you this. What if someone asks you, they know that you're a Christian, you know, and they say, hey, Christmas time, it's about Jesus being born. Why did Jesus have to be born? Like, it seems kind of weird that the God of the universe would become a baby to save his people. Why couldn't he do it some other way? What would you say? Now, imagine for a lot of us, maybe we have some kind of conceptions, but we don't have a ready answer for that. And it's because uh, the incarnation is this deep, wonderful doctrine and mystery. But to begin to think about that, I want us to look back at verses 14 and 15 in Hebrews 2. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now I think that this, uh, these two verses tell us some important things about us and some important things about God. Uh, what does it tell us about us? Well, first it tells us that we are human. <laughs> I think no surprise there. I don't think we have any superhumans um, in the crowd. We are human. Now it may seem very basic and simple, but it's extremely important because it's saying we're human and we are not God. We are creaturely. Another way that um, theologians have spoken about this through the history of the church is to say that we have a human nature. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that we're human. It's a good thing that we're creaturely. We look back in the creation account. Uh, God makes us flesh and blood, as the author of Hebrews says, and he declares it good. He calls it very good. He dignifies our humanity so much that he enters into it himself. So it's not a bad thing that we're human. But the second thing we learn here is that it's not just that we're human, but we're uh, fallen humans. We're sinful humans. You see, the problem with our humanity comes with the introduction of sin. You know, the Bible speaks of sin um, in, in basically two different categories. Sin is something that we do, like I commit a sin, or sin can also be a state of being. I am by nature a sinner, therefore I act according to my nature and I commit sins. Well, this uh, passage is really talking about the latter of those two. It's, it's talking about what's taught all throughout Scripture, that because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, everyone who's come after them have, has inherited a sin nature. It's the original sin, you might have heard it called. In other words, human nature itself is cursed. 
It's not just that me and you as discrete individuals, because we do these discrete sins, are under the curse of the fall, but rather human nature as a whole category is cursed because of sin. And the result of that curse, of course, is separation from God, who's the source of all life and truth and beauty and goodness. And separated from that, the result, therefore, is death and being in bondage as the passage talks about, to Satan. Now, what does this tell us about God? What it tells us about God is that in order to redeem us, God has to heal not just each of us, but he has to heal human nature itself. And how's he going to do that? Well, he has to redeem human nature from that spiritual kind of quicksand of sin. And the way that he's going to do that is the incarnation. Look back at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And this is where I think it's really starting to pry open some of the wonder of the incarnation. That in the person of Jesus Christ, human nature and divine nature are are united in him. One person with a human nature and a divine nature. And this is the vital precondition that makes the gospel possible. This is what the second century theologian Irenaeus was talking about in the quote that I put in the front of your worship guide. How could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we are? So that the corruptible might be swallowed up by the incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Jesus is truly human, and so that means that he can act as our representative, just like Adam did. Except whereas Adam failed as acting as our representative, Jesus, as the true human, as the truer and greater Adam, succeeds. He lives the life that we should have lived, and he dies the death that we deserved to die. He makes it possible by his righteousness for human nature to be raised up to righteousness itself. But furthermore, because God is not just, or Jesus, not just as truly human, but he's also truly God, it means that he can live life perfectly. He can never sin. He always obeys. He's always loving. But then also it means that the grave, he could die death, but the grave wouldn't hold him down. The grave could not contain the fullness of his divine being. It had to burst forth in resurrection like the dawn breaking over the horizon and expelling the darkness. Now, I I recognize that this might sound a bit out there and a bit cerebral, but friends, I believe that in the deep wells of doctrines like the Incarnation, we find incredible gospel truths, gospel truths that we can hold up against the sun and turn again and again and never cease to be amazed by. Friends, the Incarnation tells us that Jesus became like you so that you might become like Him. Isn't that outstanding? And I, I desperately hope, you know, I, 
I desperately hope, like as your pastor, that this will capture your heart and enthrall you. I desperately hope that it captures my heart and enthralls me. You know, as I was, uh, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was reading, and I, I, I love to always go back to um, some of the early theologians of the church, because I think they have a beautiful way of kind of breaking me out of my very, you know, modern mindset. And I read this quote from the 4th century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus. And I think what he writes, I think, captures so well the wonder of the incarnation. He says this, He who makes rich is made poor. He takes on the poverty of my flesh that I might gain the riches of his divinity. He who is full is made empty that I might share in his fullness. What is this wealth of goodness? What is this mystery that surrounds me? I received the likeness of God, but I failed to keep it. He takes onto my flesh to bring salvation to the image, immortality to the flesh, and enters into a second union with us, one far more wonderful than the first. Friends, I think that this is the wonder of Christmas. This is the wonder, the deeper meaning of the incarnation. And what I want to suggest is that if, if we meditate on it, if we study it, if we let it work into our kind of spiritual DNA, as it were, I think it will begin to deeply impact our life and it will begin to deeply impact our waiting. You know, in Advent, we, we, talk, we, we think about when Israel waited for the coming of Messiah and we let that inform how we wait as we wait for the second coming of Christ. I think there are deep riches in the doctrine of the incarnation that help us wait for Jesus' second coming. What are some of those? Well, I want to suggest four truths that you can grab hold of when waiting is hard that come out of the incarnation. Four truths that you can grab hold of when waiting is hard. The first truth is this. God keeps his promises. You know, back on that uh, day in second grade when I was standing in front of, uh, in front of my school, I, I couldn't help but start to question that unwritten promise that shared between par a parent and a child of you'll always be there for me. And I think that on this side of glory, as we experience the hardship and the suffering of life, we're tempted to do the same thing with God. You see, because this earthly life is lived in the already, not yet. Yes, so much of what we've already talked about is already true. Human nature has been united to the divine in Christ. We've been united to Christ through faith and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All the riches that he have are in some ways already ours. And yet, we wait until the day in which we can experience that apart from the curse of sin which still lingers over us in our world and in our hearts. And because of that, it means that this life is always going to be this admixture of glory and suffering. And when suffering seems to overtake the glory, it's hard not to go back to that original temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Did God really say, God, did, did you really say that you'd always be with me? God, did you really promise that nothing could separate me from your love? God, did you really mean it that you're going to work all things for good in my life? Because right now, it, it, 
The things in my life don't feel that good. Did God really say? But friends, in those moments when we experience that, and we all experience that, we need to go back to the incarnation as the vindication of the promises of God. You see, the author of Hebrews is getting at that in verses 12 and 13. He's calling back to these passages in the Old Testament, and he's saying that they were pointing forward, talking about when Jesus uh, would take on human form. And this is just two of the many places in the Old Testament that allude to or prophesy about the coming of the Messiah. You know, we can even look as far back as... We can even look as far back as Genesis 3. Immediately after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God says that from Eve's lineage, from the seed of the woman, is going to come one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Immediately after the, fall, after the fall, God is making promises. And we see in the Gospels that God keeps those promises. The incarnation is a reminder to us that God's promises are sure even when it feels like they aren't, and that he's always in the, in the process of keeping those promises, even when it feels like he isn't. The second truth that we can hold on to that comes to us through the incarnation is this. God is kind and merciful. You know, the longer that we are given over to doubting um, God's promises, it's easy it's easy to fall into a kind of suspicion towards God. To think, it's not just that he's not keeping up his end of the deal, but actually I think that he's not trying to. I, I think maybe he's, trying to, he's being petty or vindictive. Maybe he doesn't want the best for me. Maybe he's punishing me. I wonder if you've ever felt that way during hardship. Is God punishing me for something that I've done? Well, look back at verses 17 and 18 in Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The author of Hebrews is saying here that one of the reasons for the incarnation is that is, is God trying to convince us that he is kind and merciful. That he knows us. He knows what we've, what we've been through and what we're going through and what we're going to go through. And that in those moments, the incarnation is the testimony that God has compassion upon us. So friends, whatever you're experiencing today, God knows God knows. The incarnation is proof of that. Because we see in, throughout Christ's life, He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced weariness. He labored. He toiled. He experienced humiliation and rejection and scorn. He was abused. He died. Friends, He knows. And you know, it's, it's not like he knows, but he hangs it over your head. Saying, well, well, I've been there, but look, I got through it. Why can't you? No, he's, he's, he's merciful towards you. He's kind towards you. He has compassion for you. And he invites you to bring those things to him. Think about what he says in Matthew. Come to me. 
all who are heavy, who all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God is kind and compassionate towards you in your suffering because he knows what it's like. Third, God pursues you. Um, You know, when your waiting is filled with doubt and fear and worry, it's hard to pursue God. Prayer feels like just shooting a flare off up into the air from a life raft. Uh, Reading the Bible feels like reading the phone book. If that even exists anymore, I don't know where you can get one. Uh, Coming to church feels like going to the DMV. It's just the thing that you've got to do. But one of the great truths that's revealed in the incarnation is that the action in the gospel is on God's side. The gospel is about what God does towards us. This comes out in verse 10 of Hebrews 2 when Jesus is called the founder of salvation. That word founder, um, it's this it's this word that's kind of hard to translate from Greek that could be translated several different ways. And really, it would take a bunch of different words to get at the concept. So it can be founder. Another way it could be translated is pioneer or trailblazer. The idea here that it carries is that Jesus has gone before us and made a way where previously there was no way. He made a way for us back to God, a way that we couldn't find. He's the pioneer of salvation. He has pursued us into the depths of sin and He pulls us out. So friends, whenever it feels hard to pursue God, remember the incarnation, which is the ultimate example of God's pursuit of us. The example of Jesus being the good shepherd leaving behind the 99 to pursue the one lost. Fourth and finally, A truth that we can hold on to is this. God will bring you home. You know, so so often we view the end game of the incarnation as um, the cross. And, you know, God became man so that he could do away with our sin and make us right with God. And that is absolutely true. We see it all throughout Scripture. We see it all throughout the Hebrews passage and the Galatians passage. Absolutely. That was one of the main points of the incarnation. But we also have to realize that the, that the, incarn- the point of the incarnation didn't stop with reconciliation. Reconciliation with God is a means to, a, to, a, to another end, which is eternal communion with Him. We've not been reconciled with Him just now, but we've been reconciled, with him, reconciled to Him eternally so that we can forever be with Him and Him with us. And you know, so often, I think so often life feels hard because we know that we were made for something more. We know that we were made for something above and beyond. Something truer, something greater. And I think that that longing comes from the incarnation. When Jesus unites in His very person, a human nature and divine nature. 
Because, you know, the mystery of the incarnation, I think, is the first fruit of what we will experience in full in Christ for eternity. And that, friends, is what we long for. And our hearts will never rest until it rests in that. This is the vision that John gives us in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have, fought, have passed away. Friends, that is what we deeply long for. You know, when I was standing uh, in second grade in front of my school, feeling so alone and so nervous and so sad, what I didn't know was that my mom was on the way. Like she was in the car coming for me. And friends, if you are in here today and your faith is in Christ, that is true of you as well. In the moments where your waiting feels hard, and in your moments where you feel you, you worry that something's gone wrong, you worry that you've done something so wrong that you've been left behind, friends, remember that the incarnation is the guarantee that God is on His way. He's coming to get you, and He will bring you home. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for this great truth and mystery of the incarnation. We haven't even begun to put the tip of our finger into it. But Father, I pray that what we've heard tonight from your word and through your spirit uh, would alight a deep fire within us to know more of Christ and to experience more of our union with him. And we pray, Father, that through your spirit you would... Um, you would prepare us even now for that eternal communion that we'll share with him when he returns. Father, you know that our waiting is hard. We pray that in those moments where we feel alone, afraid, and left behind, you would help us to look back to the incarnation when in Christ you became man. And we pray that, Father, from those things that we would know all of these truths that we've talked about that you're with us, that you are kind and compassionate towards us, that you're coming for us. We ask that you do all of this through your spirit, and we ask it all in the name of your Son. Amen.